What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Dapper Villains Podcast. I am your host, Dana Bluen. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Jay Such Dave. Jay, what's going on, man? Man, I'm really good. I got a Negroni ready for the guest today. It's in the coffee mug, but it's it's definitely a Negroni. And uh, I'm gonna, and you'll find out why I have a Negroni on. So before we get into the guest, guys, do not forget to subscribe to the Dapper Villains Podcast, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, anywhere you find podcasts, you can find our show. Also, do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our Facebook page. We've got some great content coming there for you guys. With that being said, I, I want to get right into this, Jay. We have a, a great guest. You know, why, you know him personally, so you, you give a bit of background about him. Tell, tell the listeners who we got. Yeah. Well, he's a wonderful guy. He's very humble. He's one of the reasons why I believe this is a nice industry to be in because even the top most important journalists of the industry. Now, Matt, now that now that I'm saying so many nice things about him, I, I kind of wish he heard it. <laughs> I want I want those journalist points. Yeah. Okay, let's let's bring him in. Let's bring him in. So our guest name is Matt Rannick. Matt Rannick. So Matt let's, Rannick. let's get him in here. Matt, welcome to the Dapper Villains podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, pleasure. I'm sitting here in my makeshift, makeshift office in Brooklyn. So uh, I hope you enjoy all this beautiful light coming through the window. <laughs> Fantastic. Nothing, nothing says pro like backlighting, right? <laughs> yeah. You, you are. I'm trying for some rap. <laughs> Well, you're getting a good bounce off the papers to your right. So, I mean, it really looks spot on. Yeah. Yeah, these are all my outstanding uh, bills that I need to pay. <laughs> I just put up here. So no right, now I know in. a little no bit more about your credit. <laughs> so, we're, we're giving a quick intro to you. You are the founder of um, WM Brown Magazine. And, you know, it's a fantastic menswear magazine. You got a great website. But... One of the things that, that I have a question off right off the bat, and Jay's got a long history to you, so we're going to get into like your history with Jay. He was telling me some stories that I have to pull out of you later in the interview, but what makes a uh, madman want to go into print magazine publishing? Well, I, it's all I really know, first of all. Um, and, uh, y you know... I kind of grew up in, in legacy publishing my entire kind of professional career. And I just, uh, you know, I started out as a photographer. I, I just loved working with magazines. I loved everything about magazines. I loved the fantasy. I loved the people. I loved the, the travel and the, uh, and the access. And, and as you know, I navigated that space for almost 20 years and then was kind of watching it all disintegrate just at a time when I was getting the most inspired by the things around me with menswear particularly. Um, so as we watch it kind of implode, I was like, listen, where's that one magazine that speaks to the whole version of myself that had some travel and food and style, not fashion, but style and kind of great characters. And, and that was inclusive. And it was about um, all ages and it was not a specific demographic. And, um, because I was finding inspiration from all walks of life and all ages. And, you know, I thought that was like, where was that? Like who was speaking to that? So, um, 
I said to my wife, we got to, we have to do this. And luckily Yolanda had, you know, many, many years as creative director at Condé Nast. And we just decided to build this thing. And I said, you know, let's cross our fingers. Maybe we're not alone. Maybe more people are looking for this. And I was right. And um, we found a, a very niche group. I realized I didn't need to speak to everyone. I just wanted to speak to a, a chunk of people, um, a chunk of guys, really, mostly. And, uh, and now we're on issue five. Yeah, it's, and, and yeah, I've worked in, in digital publishing and, you know, everyone in digital always dogs print, right? Print's dead, you know, print's not doing anything. Then you see your magazine with these gorgeously, you know, saturated photos, these great articles. I mean, not a cheap magazine to make, I would imagine. No, it's, it's not in, you know, and it's not cheap to buy either. I mean, we're, we try to make it accessible to as many people as we can, but you know, these things, you know, first of all, it was really important to me to have it printed in the States. I kind of fringely at the fringes grew up with the American kind of great printing business. And my father was a commercial designer, a commercial artist. And so I, I didn't want to have to ship it off somewhere. And we found this, we found this printer that was, um, you know, in America, part of a big conglomerate of printing. And that was really important. Mm. And then we, we were in a way having it here, we were able to really concentrate on the quality of it. And for me, that was always a big interest, you know, like I wanted it to feel like a magazine. It's not a book. I wanted it to present like a magazine. So the paper stock and the printing and the quality of all that was really, really important to me um, because I, I had a history in that kind of end of the production. So um, we have found great support from some, uh, some advertisers like Cartier jumped on board straight away, yeah. which was really great to kind of offset, you know, the costs of these things, but also I didn't want all these ads um, kind of clogging up the interior of the magazine. So we were kind of selling those um, uh, those traditional pieces of real estate, which mm. would back cover, inside front cover, and then brands like Monkey Forty Seven got involved and saw the importance of like that single voice of who we were speaking to. Yeah. And I think the brands that um, understand that. And understand that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to speak to a hundred percent of the market. Just speak to the people that want to hear uh, whatever, you know, what you want to say and and want to buy your stuff anyway. Hmm. You know, I think that when when, the, I, when I look at it, and not making a comparison by content, but by by quality and enjoyment. It reminds me of when I was a kid and I would go to my grandfather's house and my grandfather had just stacks and stacks of Nat Geo, you know, that the old yellow yeah. cover Nat Geo and you would sit down and there's one or two ads in Nat Geo, like you said, traditional, traditional uh, real estate, something, and it is always like something that's really in tune with the, the mission of the magazine and Nat Geo has a mission. I feel like William Brown has a mission, right? And yeah, quality paper stock fully saturated to the edge you know these beautiful images and that's that's kind of the the vibe i get from from william brown well you you know you talk about digital and you know i was watching the digital landscape change so much of what i was doing and how i was working and who i was working mm -hmm. with so but 
in a weird way, this, this magazine exists because of the digital space. You know, there, it, it exists because of its relationship with Instagram and, mm. and, and, it, and it kind of is a product of Instagram. You know, it's like short, concise articles that aren't like romantically too long and, you know, you can put it down and pick it up. It, it's evergreen. Um, I think that, you know, that, that I think is a big part of the dialogue with the print is the, is the social media digital dialogue. Yeah. And we're working with that. Not, not that one is better than the other. They're just different. They're just different modalities. With imagery being a very important focus of the magazine itself as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, first and foremost, I'm a photographer. Like I went to art school. I studied photography. I moved to New York, you know, as a photographer and even like with the watch book, like it was really important visually to have these things be beautiful objects. Like, I, you know, like the Nat Geos, Dana, like, I don't want you to throw these magazines away. I don't want you to recycle these magazines. I want you to keep them on a shelf on the back of the loo, like wherever you keep, you know, yeah. so that they, they can be revisited over and over again. Because I do agree with you, like those magazines, that kind of wall of yellow spines, right? Mm -hmm. When you would walk down into the uncle's basement or whatever, and always search for the ones on Borneo because there was some news. <laughs> you know, I've been to Borneo. Um, <laughs> so um, that's been, that was the philosophy with, uh, with William Brown as well. It's like, hold on to it, keep it, put it on a shelf, give it away. Don't put it on the recycler. Yeah, I think a lot of magazines today are very much, one, they're 90% advertisements if someone's making print magazine. They're on paper thin stock, but I guess paper thin stock doesn't really make sense. <laughs> you know, super thin stock, very cheap feeling stock. Toilet paper. Toilet paper. <laughs> Essentially they are, and they should be recycled. But uh, uh, W.M. Brown, uh, the classic Nat Geo, these are the things that th there's a feeling of, of value in that something you do want to go back to. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about... Um you know, magazines out there worth keeping. And I, I do think that you have magazines out there being produced like Houdinki doing a great job, yeah. um, Alloy and Grit, which is a very Land Rover centric, um, mm. even Gear Patrol, like they, they're making an effort to uh, really make a beautiful object. You know, we can't be that naive though. Like advertising is what pays for all that stuff. Yeah. So we've been very kind of clever and trying to figure out like, how do we, support these brands that support us like how do we take the, the the little bit of currencies out there to like you know help supplement the production of this but not just throw an ad in the magazine but have a bigger conversation and that and that translates over to the digital platform so these two things are working in tandem with each other hmm. so matt when okay. i when you talked about uh cartier coming on right away they, they saw they saw the vision monkey 47 right away saw the value of the audience and the voice that you had when you were building that persona of your audience and, and who you wanted to speak to you know was it something that you you put time into that you iterated that you, you tweaked a little bit or was it something you sort of felt deep down in your bones and you just stuck with it and you drove after that you know this was a very gut feeling i 
didn't do any analytics on the audience. I, I just thought, you know, if I like it, maybe there'll be a group of people out there that like it. And I think that that's, that was just my instinct. I didn't, it wasn't out there. So I wanted to build it. Like there were magazines that I really enjoyed out there. Like I love, I love Waco at the rake. And I was looking at Houdinki and I was thinking like, okay, these guys are talking about stuff that I really appreciate, but I don't know that much about. So Mm -hmm. I do know about maybe those things in between. Mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that can kind of fill the space where these guys weren't really having much dialogue about it. And I think at the end of the day, we all work really well together in terms of that, you know, covering that little men's world niche. Like mm-hmm. I probably lean more towards, you know, being inspired by the people around me, like the guys I see at PT, Mike friends, you know, in terms of style. And then, um, and then lean a little bit more to the esoteric in terms of food and cars and stuff like that. So it was just the gut feeling of what I wanted for myself selfishly and was hoping that we would find a voice with a bigger group of people, which, um, I mean, Jay's been to the parties in PT. Um, we've certainly spoken uh, uninvited, to the Uninvited, uninvited. I've, I've been to yeah, your parties. Always, uh, always I've crashed invited. your party once and then uh, been, been a regular since. That's good. Yeah, Jay, Jay told me this story about he crashed your your launch party for the magazine. Yeah, and um, I was I was standing at the bar, and uh, Matt was there, and I I I do kind of realize that he's the he's the host, but uh, he was super friendly, and we were talking as if we've known each other for years, and uh, uh, then I just got really uh, drunk from all the free interviews <laughs> later, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, but but I think that's the perfect example. Like, you know, I was coming into this quite green um, and not necessarily knowing all the players. But, you know, for me, the best part of even that first launch was like, you know, we maybe invited 50 people, but 250 showed up. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, and we kind of just welcomed all of that. Like we were there like with big open arms, like the more the merrier and let's create this community. And for me, the spontaneity of that is exactly um, what the magazine is in terms of a voice um, that, yeah. yeah, we want everybody involved. Like every, you know, we want everybody to win. Like, you know, let's, yeah. let's create a platform and an environment um, and a philosophy where um, it's all kind of one inclusive kind of family. Yeah. yeah. And it is true about the sartorial community. Like, I mean, people might see the peacocking side and all of that, but, but in reality, it's a really friendly community and everybody's really down to earth and humble. And they're just like, no matter how many followers a guy has, how many verifications somebody has or a magazine or so, everybody's really down to earth and, and they're just normal guys and just want to have, you know, a good time and have real good friends after the yeah. Piriumo, after the whole, you know, photography and all of that. I totally agree. Yeah, I think we have a very similar philosophy podcast wise. Like we know that there are other podcasts out there. You know, we're not trying to take over, you know, the world on podcasts. We want to help other people. Other people have helped us. Our first guest actually, uh, Jay Gatz, he had he's working on launching his own podcast based on the experience that he had on ours. So, you know, I think that's yeah. that's something that we've seen across the board with Oh the shit, community. he's like, becoming a competition. We got to send somebody to beat him up. 
Well, even if you look in the in in even if you look in the magazine aspect of things, like yeah. you know, wake the rake sells William Brown online. Like a mm. magazine sells a magazine. Like that's what's so cool of, about that and those relationships of the people is like we all understand. Like you know, collectively we win. Yeah. So you know, you, you know, in the magazine space, you know, particularly in this niche world, like you do have you know a lot of support internally because everyone understands like we all collectively win right we're yeah. all helping each other and we're all kind of pioneers of independent print and then you have someone like way co at the rake who's like selling my magazine on the rake website which is mm. crazy you know a yeah. magazine selling another magazine but you know that's the that is the philosophical sensibility of the community like we all like want to support each other and we don't see it as like aggressive competition yeah sure we're all competitive but like it's not like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bad mouth folks world i think you know there's a lot there's a big playing field there's a lot of opportunity we should all be working together yeah absolutely, absolutely. you know and I, and I mean that's what i find from you guys like um when i first got there like uh, to stand next to you and you're buying people Negronis. Like when I first met Way, Way is getting everybody drinks and like uh, everybody's so humble when they can. In fact, like, you know, you guys can totally be a jerk and we will still have to be nice to you because you're a, you're a journalist and you could, you know, change our lives. But on top of that, you're actually, everybody like all the journalists in the industry, Sonia, Hugo Giacome, uh, Way Cole, you know, I've, I've had a lot of personal time and learn a lot mm -hmm. from a lot of people. Scorsese, I spent four days with Scorsese, you know, singing, uh, we all live in a yellow submarine at 2 a.m. getting <laughs> smashed. But then the next day he tells me like, elegance is about not being snobbish. And, right. and that for me, like, you know, kept, it would always echo what elegance means. And um, that well, is very much true about how your attitudes are. Well, I also think, you know, I spend, uh, some time when I was in the magazine world as a men's editor, like, you know, navigating the high fashion elements of, of the fashion world, you know, mm -hmm. like the, without mentioning brands, you could just imagine. And I always felt like those people, you know, in the pecking order, trying to get their seat in the front row of the show and who was in the front row, who was in the second row. Like, I just thought that was just bullshit. Like, I, I hated all that. Like, or if like some, you know, editor with more experience than me, like took my seat and I'd be like, um, yo, dude, I'm 5F, like get out of it. And they're like, no, you could, you know, sit over there. It was just like, it wasn't fun. It was just like everyone kind of giving everyone the stink eye mm. rather than everyone handing each other like drinks, which I think is way more fun. Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm happy not to be involved in, in that aspect of the, you know, kind of fashion world quote. Hmm. Let, let's talk about so the Negroni, Negroni drink. Yeah, that was right. Mm -hmm. Same, same timing. So who owns the Negroni? How did it become that, you know, whoever drinks Negroni has to tag you? Now I can't drink Negroni without tagging you. It's just, uh -huh. uh, you have owned you know, it. I, I think it, it I think it happened very organically. I mean, I probably had my first when I was traveling to Italy, Italy when I was in college and uh and I just think as you get older you become, you know, your adult palate changes and I, I don't sit around real like 
I'll sit around drinking a couple beers, but I don't sit around like pounding beers anymore. You know, mm-hmm. like I, um, I, I like, uh, I like the color of the drink, the sophistication of it. What it, it reminds me of Italy. It makes me feel happy. I've never actually been hung over by Negronis, believe it or not. I, I just think like, um, it's just, uh, and I think because so many of us in the menswear world are, are in Italy or in Florence or in Naples, like mm-hmm. it's such, it's so synonymous with the culture that it actually, um, became the kind of symbol of menswear in a weird way. Yeah. And, and I just always, um, I, if, if given a choice, that's the drink, either that or like, or a martini, you know, like. I, I, I'm writing. A, I'm writing a book right now about Negroni and Martini, and um, in a very kind of you know the the non-professional but expert you know point of view on the drinks. And I talk about how you know as an adult, I want to come like I want them out of the gate fast. Like I don't need to like you know slow burn the buzz. You know, mm-hmm. I just want to be like happy immediately you know like <laughs> and those and those drinks do that and uh and and we've seen now that they've actually created community which is so so hysterical really? and yeah. i think you know instagram obviously fr- frames a very specific point of view on how someone presents themselves and of course like i'm presenting myself in a very specific way i'm not i don't want to waste anybody's time and bore them on the you know this part of my life you know this mess <laughs> you know um and and then that just became part of the negroni dialogue you know i started photographing all the negronis that i you know to the point where my mom like thought i was a full-blown alcoholic you know <laughs> and i'm like which of course I, you I are like, i'm <laughs> yeah but i was like i don't drink them all at the same time these are pictures over the course of uh so uh but yeah i think it's fun that it, there's been this connection to 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 this one thing and I, I i do think that was purely accidental in a weird yeah. way i, I, I think, think of i, I think, think of the negroni and jay is the only person who comes to mind for me because when when i first met jay it was like instantly like the next day i see him posting negronis everywhere he goes negroni 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 and then he's always like, oh, this guy isn't really into Negronis. And the more I got into the space, I start to see it everywhere. When we booked this interview, Jay's like, we have to have a serious conversation. Because Matt is the Negroni guy. He's like the one who brought it to the scene. You just have to respect that. Like, he is the godfather of Negronis. <laughs> so awesome. Well, I have a, um, a receipt on my filing cabinet to the left here. Uh, I should grab it real quick. Let me show you something. Actually, my my um, memories of like the reason why I like Negroni was I was dating this girl and she forced me to try this Negroni. And I was like, what is this awful drink? And the date was so good. It was so romantic that I would always order Negroni <laughs> after that. And then when I joined Piri Umo, uh, then I saw that that was a drink. And I'm like, dude, that's actually it's not a bad drink. It's It's actually a really good drink as well. And but then when you make somebody else tries it for the first time, you always get that face. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> you got to okay. get into it. Okay, so here are the receipts from Harry's Bar the mm. first time we met each other, okay? Yeah. So we had a budget for the party, I don't know, for like three grand or something, mm-hmm. right? We figured 
we'd get 75 people in, blah, 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 blah. My whole thing was like, let's just make Negronis because I don't want people to have a choice. Like it's a Negroni. I don't want to have to worry about a variation or two or three bottles of wine or a white and a red. I was like, just serve Negronis. Let's keep, keep it simple. Yeah. So um, the, the total for this on uh, September 1st, 2019 is 10,155. And then and, and Roberto just immediately took 2,000 euros off because he was like, we have never seen a party like this at Harry's before. Like, it was so much fun. You know, you were in- incredible. The people you brought was incredible. And then I looked at, like, Jake, um, Matthew Coles from Drake's, and Gerardo because we were all going to kind of chip in for the three grand. Yeah. And we looked at each other, and they were like, Oh my God, it was 250 some Negronis or something, right? No, it says right here, sorry, 452 (laughs) Negronis. Okay, so I just said to those guys, listen, this was his, this was such an amazing night for me. Like, I know you guys committed to a certain amount, like just commit to that. And I just put the visa down. I was like, this is the best investment I think I could make in the magazine which was true. You know, I think we created this massive fan base uh, that night, you know, and that was the first issue. Hmm. So we've been keeping that tradition at Harry's. Um, We've been more careful about uh, our budgets, uh, but we still average 500 Negronis per event. Um, We had a massive um, for this June that of course got sidestepped. But that doesn't mean we can't do it in January, so. I'll I'll say it on recording, I'd love to chip in. I I like your party a lot. Your party is, um, it, well, last year it got a little crowded um, because I think it became the thing, like it became the must go, Um, but it was still packed with like really cool people and everybody who was Well, what's also funny is like, I. You know, I have some people in the kind of fashion PR world that don't normally show up for stuff like that, but because they're friends, you know, they're dealing with like slightly higher end uh, fashion brands and things like that. Mm. And they walked in and they were like, how did you get this crowd here? Like, not only are is like the best, most styled, most incredibly kind of put together guys, there's actually really beautiful women here. Like, where did you find them? You know, and in that dude world that you don't get a lot of that crossover, you know? And um, I I love that that happens organically like that. Like that, and you know, and I love that people just show up. Like we, I never was gonna have a door policy, like, you know, like cap it at this or no, you know, if they don't have an invite, you know, we were making up like little business cards with the very old school. This was Jake Muser's idea, right? very old school, like club days, like you would just have a pocket full of flyers and you would hand it off to somebody that you just met or maybe you mistakenly forgot to invite. <laughs> and you're like, hey, we'll see you tonight. And you hand like a uh-huh. little business, right? I thought that was amazing because then we could be very, very spontaneous with the the kind of people that we were running into and just were like, mm. I just dig your vibe. We'll see you there for Negronis, come on, you know? 
that's, 10, that's so dope. 10,000 euros later. <laughs> <laughs> well, was it always that much? Like, was it consistently 10,000 euros every, every time after that? Well, we got smarter. I mean, we got more, we got liquor, we got liquor sponsors to, um, to, you know, donate booze, which really offset costs. And then we get other sponsors. And, you know, one year I did it with Douglas with the Negroni tweed and you know so we were just kind of more clever about it less uh less um spontaneous but still keeping that energy you know it, i just was covering my ass that i didn't have to you know, i was eat, like are you eat. cousins with the campari guys like are you related somehow like is that do you know them at all do they know you you, you know that this was the first um these these william brown parties are the only times that harry's had ever run out of campari wow. which is amazing I'm very proud of that. Um, <laughs> no, I wish Campari, if Campari, if you're listening, it's time for a sponsorship. Oh, we're going like, to tag uh, the fuck out of them. I, I, I want yeah. free English too. <laughs> I think yeah. they're not going to give a damn, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, you know, we, they, they began to pay attention in New York with the tweet. There was an uh, inside hook with Natty and we talked about the tweet. And then all of a sudden, like the, the Campari rep was like, people are talking about this and blah, 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 blah. And Jake ended up making a few jackets out of the tweed um, for some Campari executives. So, you know, it's a slow, like I said, it's a, it's a bit of a slow burn, but um, we're more and more on the radar, which is Oh, great. I thought you got there already. Like it, it, it would only make sense, right? Like why wouldn't Campari be the main sponsor of WM Brown? I don't know. We got to get on that. Yeah. It seems like a missed opportunity. For them. I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, well, threaten, let's threaten to uh, switch to Martini if they don't sponsor us. <laughs> oh, that, that would do it. <laughs> or just go straight bourbon. Threaten to switch to old fashions. Yeah, right. Do you drink bourbon? Um, I do drink bourbon. And um, I have collected uh, kind of vintage American bourbons that I really, really like. Um, it's more of a winter go-to for me, like after dinner, like I'd like it neat. Um, I do like a Boulevardier. Um, but I think in my heart of hearts, um, I'm a gin guy, you know? I mean, I, I, I like all spirits, don't get me wrong, but, um, I would say more often than not, I have, I'll reach for the gin. And I also have been beat up pretty bad from from bourbon in the past there there's some there's been some ugly events uh yeah. and uh so you know there's some you muscle for memory. a while if you fuck up on a drink and then you 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 your mind goes that oh it's because of the drink and you want to avoid that drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah i had yeah, that yeah, with yeah. jim bean once and i to this day still have not had jim bean yeah i have that with you know, marijuana <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I think you, you, you got to just sort of, um, you know, pick a lane. And I think I picked my lane. You know? Well, it's working for you, obviously. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, as, right. as I think so, about like, you know, the, the overlap and the, the drink and the menswear, and like you said, it's really become, you know, people have taken notice, right? But, but more so than that, like you, you have the opportunity with WM Brown to really you know, to push a narrative, like, how does that responsibility weigh on you now that people do take notice? 
you're in a position that you can control a narrative to speak to an audience in you know the magazine is influential like does that does that responsibility weigh on you as a as an editor as a journalist publisher you know not really i've always been someone very quick to offer up opinions even if the people didn't ask for them like i'm like the guy in the grocery line that's like have you tried these chickens these are you know like um <laughs> So I, I like having knowing that. knowing you I, I yeah that's so true <laughs> it's for real you know so but I I think that um, for me you know it, it, all all my opinions are coming from a very authentic place like I really do care about the people that I'm talking about in the magazine I really do care about the brands um, it would be difficult for me to take a back cover ad from a brand that I wasn't, I didn't care as much about as I do about Cartier. You know, I own mm -hmm. Cartier's. I've always, you know, really admired the brand. Like, so for me, the, the dialogue that's happening in the magazine comes from a very honest place, which is thing that I like. So I hope you like it. And uh, I have also been really lucky to, to be approached by so many brands that, that um, I, have, I have cared about or do care about and they say oh you know how do you feel about a collaboration or what's the tone that you could take with our brand and blah 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 and for me that's easy it's really easy because um i it, it's come from a place of uh of care to begin with you and your covers of all the magazines are so dope like the photography of that it's it's it is unlike any other magazines out there like the, the pictures you guys take well, I'm very, very lucky to have people like Jamie Ferguson, Robert Spangle, Scott Schumann, you know, like uh, Henry Lutweiler, Dewey Nix, like these guys that whose work I've always, always admired, who have been so generous with their time and talents um, to be a part of this thing and mm -hmm. to actually, you know, for photographers like Dewey and Henry who live in the States and had, a, had uh, well, Henry lives in Switzerland now, but like that have prolific um, editorial careers. There, there's not those formats anymore, mm. just kind of celebrating the imagery. So yeah. a lot of these guys have even allowed me to dive deep into their archives and say like, hey, you know that story you did on blah, 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 12 years ago that I remembered in interview or whatever, like, can we republish that? And they're like, are you kidding me? Of Please. <laughs> you know, and, and that's great to have, you know, I kind of grew up with all this, this, in, th these photographers and, and, and right, you know, who have been so generous in terms of wanting to just be involved, even without compensation. Mm -hmm. And the, and, and I think the, the biggest joy and, and right now, at least the comp the compensation for them is to see it live or live again. And mm -hmm. I think yeah. that's, um, that's, that, that's very exciting for me. I think even like as you guys were talking about how 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 long a magazine could stay when it's a real physical form, like Instagram, nobody really goes back two years ago and see what somebody shot. But with real physical magazines, you get that, and and your image kind of you know lives, and it it's a physical thing instead of just something somebody taps like, and you're restrained to that format of you know square. And well, even even thinking about like keeping imagery digitally on your computer like how how often do you do the deep dive into your hard drives and go through pictures like yeah i i don't and, and when i do i'm always surprised like holy cow where what where when when did i do that you know like that kind yeah. of thing 
and and then but you know you go to a photo album on the shelf or you go to a magazine and then it's like there's an immediacy there you don't have to charge it you don't have to plug it in it, it, yeah. you know like it, it's yeah. not it's not antiquated technology you know yeah. um and uh that to me is what i think i most romanticize about do you think millennials will start uh digging uh print magazines yes, soon for sure i mean i just like it, vinyl records just like yeah. you know a lot they all come back right well it's funny i've been talking like i'm very inspired by the kind of you know millennial tech geniuses and you know there was then a couple guys that kind of introduced themselves to yolanda and myself and and i'm really interested in their perspective on uh creating voice and you're doing a magazine like how do you do that that's so awesome like you know and that that's all i've ever known how to do all the new media um is something that is all about that learning curve you know do you have a magazine that you uh used to look up to that you wanted to be like wanted to you know publish i mean like? i i got i mean i was a kind of ask you know i love of course i love national geographic but i loved vogue and vanity fair and gq and you know esquire and um those were all the magazines that um i was constantly being an influence by is the distribution uh is a distribution system in the magazine well nightmare to deal with well you know that was the biggest problem for us because we knew how to make magazines but like any mm -hmm. supply chain uh yeah. the most important thing is you know getting something to market and we didn't know how to do that like we we didn't even we naively were just like oh my god what do we do now because when i did the first issue you know i basically put it on instagram and woke up to like i don't know a thousand uh, dms like i want to buy this then all of a sudden like yeah. we were mailing ourselves thousands of copies of magazines it was wow. just crazy but then we you know the idea was to kind of get it in like-minded retail get it in like-minded like make people go to drake's and mm. buy the magazine and all of a sudden maybe discover something that they didn't even knew how to google like you know like it's like walked out with some beautiful pocket square or went to jake's and found an, an amazing suit or you know like that was for me the important part of the distribution dialogue and then it was in in and then like the old school independent magazine shops in new york started to buy it and they loved it and all of a sudden i get a phone call like matt it's mohammed like we need a hundred copies and we were like holy cow and i would drive them <laughs> You know, I would drive them in <laughs> in my car, and but now we have a real, you know, our printer handles a, a, you know, a broader spectrum of the distribution model. But not unlike yourself, like you know, I I want people to like, you know, if I want to get access in the magazine in Southeast Asia or mm. even in the middle Middle East now, like I'd rather have it be through a conduit of yeah. somebody as a relationship. You know, yeah. because those relationships are the like-mindedness that you yes. want to perfect. Exactly. I, like, it would so, be a great, like, Mike, I know for a fact that tailor shop owners will truly appreciate it as a gift. Like, a lot of people still don't know about it here. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, hey, Matt, can I can I start, like, you know, getting the magazines and giving to people, to, to my clients? And then hopefully that can, you know, spiral and create a whole different wave yeah. because there is that you know um the shipping cost of just 
the magazine and stuff like that. It's just, it's hard to get here. Hmm. Yeah, of course. You know, and that's then, you know, I know we had a discussion about this, but like, you know, I get messages from people all the time, like, can you send it to Dubai or can you send it, can you get it to Singapore? And we're just sort of like, yeah, but it's, it's going to cost you like, 50 bucks to, for a $20 yeah. magazine. Like yeah. that's why it's, it's it, even for Europe, you know? So that's why I think it's cool. Like we have hubs in Paris, Milan and Rome um, and to have like the Middle East or, you know, in London, like I just say, Hey, go to another country, which is a French shop in London, walk in there and buy it or go to the newsstand in my, the Chitlin, uh, Chitlin firehouse or, you know, like I think it's fun to kind of drive people, into those kind of spaces to buy the magazine and then i don't have to they don't have to spend 30 dollars to have it shipped and i don't have to go to the post office thank god <laughs> you're based in brooklyn right yeah we live in brooklyn and um well and for the last three months we've been pretty much up at my farm in upstate new york as well okay is it, where did the where did the inspiration for the name of the of the magazine come from William Brown. So that happened um, again pretty organically uh, because you know I bought this property that was part of a big dairy farm, like in upstate New York, and you know there's a lot of dairy that um, that was being produced in there from the turn of the century up into the up until now, really. And um, this was a part of a big farm that uh, in the '70s they were selling off parcels. Um, as like vacation properties in a very isolated place. There's a lot of like uh, outdoor activity up there, hunting, fishing, blah, blah, blah. And um, I grew up an hour from there. So um, about 20 years ago, Yolanda and I were looking for, escape, looking for an escape from New York. And we're on this road, William Brown Road. And there was this piece of property for sale and we ended up buying it. And then we lived in an Airstream trailer in, for a couple of years and then built a cabin and then built a bigger house. And it, it just became this, you know, a lot of this, the escape and the experiment of a kind of lifestyle that was so much in contrast to New York became the, the William Brown project when I was writing a blog. So um, that just turned into the Instagram. Then there was a follower on Instagram and we were going to name the magazine. It, it's sort of like, I guess, when you name a band it, it at the beginning at the beginning you're just sort of like what the hell is the beatles like who came <laughs> up with that stupid name? you know but but after a while it just kind of takes on a personality and persona of itself and that's what you know william brown has become and it also it also kept me uh so who's, kept my who's the yoko ono in the thank blue god brown. Thank, thank god she's not around right now at least at this point <laughs> Um, it's a dangerous uh, question. So, Jack. yeah, no, no one's breaking up the band yet. Um, but uh, that's that's pretty much the origins of it. So I wanted to create this persona that was, you know, the a slightly kind of alter ego of myself, but also um, was reflective on the place that was giving me the most inspiration at the time. Interesting. Yeah. I can see that, especially like when you go through the, the way you explain it as the project, right? The WM project, you, you lived in an Airstream, you built a cabin, you built a house, you know, experimenting with this life outside of New York City normality. Yeah. 
And, you know, we were bringing a lot of New York to the country and a lot of the country back to New York. And it created this very nice symbiotic um, relationship of like that city mouse, country mouse. Hmm. I, can, I can see that. It must be nice too. like living in the city myself. I know Jay, just the other week, he went up to the, uh, he went up to explore some uh, more rural land outside Bangkok. You know, and I, I can see how yeah. that's a, a very relaxing escape when you're used to the, the sort of concrete jungle of New York City. Bangkok. Yeah, I mean, just a simple, plain farm that, you know, when I grew up looked like up the most boring shit ever. Um, now that, you know, as an adult, uh, the busyness of life and all the phone calls and Mondays, and, you know, that's so relaxing and peaceful. Mm. And I take a lot of inspiration from you that... Um, but uh, you, you go and hunt every morning or something like that as well? <laughs> you hunt your own uh, food? Um, during, the, during the, you know, I kind of grew up with a dad who was that kind of character and, you know, who really was a country squire. And um, those connections to the land were really important to me as I became an adult. And uh, yeah, so now it's kind of like trout season and this fishing season. And, you know, I expose my daughter to that. And in the fall, there's more... Um, hunting and you know in America we don't have the option to uh, actually the only way to prepare wild game is to actually hunt it like there's not a market for it like there is in England and in, in Europe so that, that the culinary experience is a big part of the um, the celebration of those activities for me you know to kind of bring it full circle but I, I do really enjoy it and I and it brings me back and connect me to the people that were kind of the most important to me growing up uh and that's what that farm does you know it's mm -hmm. it's a it, the landscape is the same as from from where i grew up and to make those connections i think and to create uh these traditions with my daughter i i think are really important yeah where'd yeah. you grow up? How, how long is a drive from uh sorry where'd you grow up i grew up in binghamton new york so that's like three hours from the city an hour from uh, where my house is um and you know binghamton was like a little mini metropolis mostly immigrant community most tons of italians my mother's italian uh mm -hmm. ibm was born there uh macintosh audio was born there uh there's huge general you know ge had a big plan plan there there were huge military contracts in the 80s there i remember as a kid like we were number 10 on the nuke list or whatever. We were like, well, you know, it was like, a, you know, but it had it, it had its origins in the industrial revolution. It was a real, it was a twin river town. And um, it, it kind of was at the hub of the industrial revolution, which brought a lot of immigrants there. You know, this is a town that was built on the backbone of Italians and Eastern Europeans. Uh, and then later, um, you know, Southeast Asians, um, uh, Latin Americans, you know, like, so to me, there was always this melting pot of, of community and people there, um, which we realize how influential that was on, on my adult life. America really is a unique place. Like when you go to, like I, I traveled like in, in the past 10 years, I've been to about 40 countries and a backpack and I go like really slow travel and stuff no plans, don't go to the Eiffel Towers, but I would go to like a random spot. And uh, I saved America for last kind of deal. And when I went to America, it was so different. I was like, I don't know what to eat. I don't want to have burgers. I want to know what's 
American food, you know. Uh, right. I want to do American things, and but it's 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 like mini world, and I could understand why somebody could be born there and die there and not even care about seeing the world because, which is yeah. part of the problem too. But yeah, it's just you get everything there already, and you feel well, the like thing that's is, the world. You know, it, it we are such a huge country, you know. And I yeah. didn't realize that truly until I drove across the country and I did that when I was in my 20s. And you're like, holy cow. And then, then you start realizing, even though now we're such a, a global community because of the digital interface of everything, mm -hmm. but, you know, you understand why, you know, some places that are so isolated have very singular, very insulated ideas about things. You know, um, I don't excuse them for, some of the stupidity of those yeah. ideas but but you you can understand like why yeah. we as a as a culture do not think alike because you know people in new york lean more to the european sensibility of things and then mm -hmm. you know even you go to detroit and you think like oh detroit the backbone of american car industry well p.s the largest uh, um lebanese community outside lebanon are in detroit mm -hmm. So like when you're in Detroit, like you're like surrounded by the best Middle Eastern food. You, I mean, it's crazy, you know, and then, you know, where I grew up, it was, you know, Italians and Eastern European restaurants everywhere. Like I never ate American food. Like my, my aunt who owned a diner, which is of course the classic American experience yeah. served Italian food at the <laughs> diner. So like, to to me that is that is the beauty of the american experience is is all these cultural influences that that kind of create the language of where what the place is and then you know you go to the american south and you see like the influences of like west indian and west african slaves and how they impacted the food in the community and and i think like that contribution through horrible circumstance is such a great cultural con contribution to that part of America. So, you know, it, we're a very difficult culture to figure out because there are so many cultural influences that are creating this one culture, which is America, you know? I think more people should understand we are this culture of diversity and the sooner we embrace that, the, you know, not to get on a political tangent, but like, like yeah. this, you know, I think it will be my daughter's generation that will ultimately change that. You know, she's 17 and we really hope so. I yeah, really hope so. I mean, it, it's so sad that how like it seems to be almost gone and then it would come back <laughs> to stupidity and then it's almost gone and then it comes back again. I'm like, when hard. is this evolution gonna yeah. fucking happen why is it going back to being stupid again i i blame old white men yeah i would yeah. agree you know I, I i think you know this is this is not modern thinking this is not you know like when i when i see my daughter and i see her friends and i see this amazing palette of 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 people um and in a generation that we're only hopeful that, you know, will be more aggressive and more true to their ideas. You mm. know, 
And food, art, music are where, you know, the race does not matter. Sometimes somebody can be extremely racist, like in UK, in the north of UK. I know a lot of people, you know, they hate brown people, but then their favorite food is Indian food and they eat yeah. it with the hands. I'm like, I'm using spoon and fork with this racist asshole. And he's like, using I'm like, well, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, well, maybe that is the equalizer, you know, yeah. you know, and I think so much about this stuff is about fear of the unknown. And then would you expose people and hopefully through, let's say food and drink uh, mm. to an aspect of a culture, they start looking at the culture a little bit differently. Yeah. And I think um, for me, I always navigated, uh, navigated through my stomach, like, and, yeah. and, and that's um, why I, that's why I fell in love with so many cultures and uh, um, was because I wanted to eat their food. <laughs> Man, you during, during the lockdown, you were cooking a lot, and I think you're yeah. already writing a cookbook, or are you yeah, about to? So through that experience, um, my publisher Artisan, who did the Watch Book and the Car Book, mm. um, they are really prolific cookbook publishers and have, you know, an amazing roster of chefs in in books that they do. And I was telling them about my experience about keeping this food journal. Um, and yeah, it's turned, it's going to turn into, um, it's going to turn into a kind of lifestyle cookbook centered around, you know, my experiences for the last three months up at the farm. Nice. Can you make proper Thai food? You know, we, okay. I know this isn't actually a real Thai dish, but um, we love Pad Thai. And I know that that was like the most American kind of, I think it was invented. No, it, it's a real Thai that. dish. It's, it's a real Thai yeah. involved in it. But but we we are mad about Asian food, and um, I think some of the best food I ever had in my life was in Bangkok, and and I, I mean, it was in Thailand when I was working on a story there. And one of my mm -hmm. favorite dishes I had was I think we were down towards Koh Phi Phi, and uh, we were in this little tiny village, and this woman made us a lunch of just stir fried cashews and chili over rice. Yeah. There you go. Oh my. God. God, I mean, it was. Is like it with chicken? That... Is it with chicken? No, it was just cashew, cashew oh, chili, okay. over rice with a beer for lunch, and I was like, "This nice. is the most perfect thing I've ever eaten in my life." So we we spend a lot of, and my daughter's crazy for for you know the kind of she has a very Asian palate. So we go to Korean markets um, out in New Jersey on the way up. We have amazing Japanese markets here, and. And, uh, and of course, you always kind of get this Thai kind of crossover there. So we're a house filled with like rice noodles. Very global, and, you know, very global in that way, right? I mean, fish, I've seen your Indian food. And, and, like you yeah. make proper, like authentic looking food, at least from from the looks yeah. of it. Um, you just said not I wanted, like, <laughs> like I don't know many American houses that keep a like bottle of fish sauce in the fridge, but. Uh, I know American Thai restaurants that package. don't have fish sauce in the kitchen. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. I, yeah, I, you know, if, uh, again, like a big, a big deep dive of this, this isolation was going, getting into all these um, cookbooks that I have collected over the years. And, you know, there have been these amazing uh, Asian cookbooks in Korean, uh, Korean specifically, that we took the deep dive in because we were able to have get access to the ingredients now. And it was just epic, epic. And, and I just love those flavors, you know. 
Great plan. Right. I, I really want to ask you a lot more questions, but I think we should start the 10 questions so that we can come back okay, to a let's few do more sartorial yeah. things. Yeah, so let, let's jump into these 10 questions. And, you know, again, these are fun, no pressure, no pressure, and no, pressure. no wrong answers. Unless they are wrong, then we'll let you know. <laughs> um, okay. You know, but first, you so, know, especially you, in, in the sartorial world, we talk about fabric a lot. You know, Jay's a fabric guy. You know, I, I work with different types of fabrics all day. You know, we all have our favorites, but if you can only choose one uh, between linen, wool, and cotton, which would it be and why? Okay, so I, I spend a lot of time in the Northeast of America. I grew up in the Northeast of America. Um, and I, I think wool is my, my favorite and will always be my friend. And I think tweed specifically. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I don't own a lot of linen, but I do own, a, I would say, you know, I would say the, the runner up would be, would be cottons, of course, but like mm. wool in terms of, you know, from my long underwear to my Harris tweed suits plays the, you know, the biggest role in, in my sartorial life. Yeah. Tweed is, I, I love tweed too. Is this? Living in tropical country, uh, it's not exactly uh, viable. Mm -hmm. You did a beautiful yeah. photo shoot in uh, Scotland, if I'm not mistaken, where yeah. you went with uh, Angel, and uh, that that yeah. to me was like a tweet shoot, well done. Like that's yeah, you know, you're right there in the activity that you would wear tweet for in the weather that you would wear tweet. For. Well, there's there's a reason why Harris is made in Harris. Like it, it it's yeah, terrible practical thing you know yeah um, yeah uh, and i i made a kind of i made a trip there and i i just was so taken aback of the the beauty and the the level of craft for that so yeah i would say wool is uh i, I couldn't live without it all day do you have a favorite item a favorite menswear item that you have you know i'm a big fan of the overshirt i think and and like the kind of safari jacket like I like those pieces of menswear that cross over from casual to formal. Like you could take a, you know, a safari jacket on the plane straight to the hotel, throw a necktie on it, and it still looks really kind of cool and good and appropriate. Mm -hmm. So I would say now more than ever, I really travel with a kind of a handful of those, either that Jake has made me or Drake's. Um, and then, uh, or, and some vintage pieces. So I, I, I really love this idea of a, of, of a kind of versatile over jacket safari coat thing, mm. you know? Nice. Now th this one, I know you're, you're, you're into hunting, you're, you're spending time in upstate New York, of course, you know, in Brooklyn, I'm sure you see a lot of denim and, you know, denim, something yeah. I work with on, on a daily basis. I wear denim every day, but, how do you feel about people who, and is it ever okay to wear denim on denim on denim on denim on denim, like the denim shirt, the jeans, the denim jacket with the denim socks, the denim underwear, a denim cap. Is that ever okay to rock a Canadian tuxedo? I'm a big fan of the Canadian tuxedo. Like I, wow. you know, um, <laughs> in, in, in 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 the I think I in 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 mostly in the kind of workwear sensibility. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. I I'm not I don't have like a denim tuxedo literally, and I don't have like denim suiting, 
Uh, you know, I, I grew up with Levi's 501s, shrink to fit. Like yeah. we wore them in the bathtub. To, we wore them in my aunt's swimming pool and laid out in the sun until they dried on our bodies. Like we yeah. were obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. And then when salvage, you know, all this kind of salvage Japanese denim trends and which were actually had their roots in America, you know, um, I was collecting all that stuff in, you know, thrift stores and, and, you know, I just had, I lived for 501s. That's all I cared about. And then of course I went down the, the helmet laying uh, wormhole in the nineties and then APC. And I was the, I owned the first pair of APC salvage denim, which as you know, we're pretty much based on the 501, just yep. better quality denim as like the American denim trade uh, started going to Central America and to Southeast Asia and, you know, um, and cone denim. I used to go to, I worked with Francois Jabot years ago and all their jeans were being made by cone, you know, North it was Carolina. unbelievable. Yeah. In North Carolina. So no, it's a big part of my life. And now I see my daughter like so dialed in with 501s and on eBay finding vintage denim and da 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 da. It's interesting how it comes full circle. And I always Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, you know, I've been kicked out of the 21 club and many establishments um, for not dressing properly because I was wearing jeans. And I'm like, these aren't fucking jeans. Okay. These are like, you know, $400 custom denim pants (laughs) you know and like and and i think paired with a tweed jacket and an oxford and a knit tie like nothing can be chicer you know and then you know cuffed tapered cut off i i love it and and i and i actually have a pile of vintage uh, denim shirts that i have thrifted over the years with like white white painted snap buttons and to wear that with a pair of 501s and a, a denim chore coat, like vintage Carhartt denim chore coat all day long. I would love it. Nice. Nice. Now I'm with you on the, especially the salvage stuff. I source salvage all over the place. One of my most popular items is actually a salvage denim tote that I make. And uh, whenever I do a run, oh, cool. snap it up. Yeah. I think it's, um, I think it's a wonderful material and I think it can be incredibly elegant and utilitarian all on the same you know yeah it's cool that you mentioned like the japanese salvage right it's inspired by americana it's actually made on american looms usually right those looms are imported from the u.s well i heard this great story um one time uh from a friend of mine who worked at ralph lauren where they you know i guess in that area and i don't know if it was cone specifically but it was definitely in the carolinas uh all the all the salvage looms were gone Mm -hmm. and they were down there trying to get more material and there wasn't enough machines to accommodate the the amount of material they needed Mm -hmm. and they found one old timer there who said well i know where there's four looms sitting in a field and i could probably make you one machine out of those four and they did it because all those machines were sold off to japan or or shipped down to central america and you know and and now got you know rest in peace kona is gone which i think is an absolute tragedy yeah but you know luckily you have culture smart enough like the japanese who saw the value of what that was mm. and and basically saved it as they've done with a lot of trad style mm. you know about a month ago i was actually looking to to buy a loom i was like I can, I can run, I can learn how to run a salvage loom and I can make my own salvage <laughs> denim. And I was, I was looking online and my, my wife is like, 
what, what are you doing? I'm like, I, I'm going to buy a, a denim and make my own salvage denim. She's like, and, and where are you going to put it? I was like, oh, we'll clear out where the dining room table is in the studio. And that will be, and she's like, no, no. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> Ambitious. I, I, I was hoping it was, it was a little bit of a dream, but maybe in the future, if I, if I buy a warehouse or something, uh, it can happen. Yeah, for sure. You know, and when we talk about like the, the Japanese and Americana and stuff, but, you know, to shift it back to more sartorial, you know, and you like tweed. So, you know, tweed is a very British fabric, very British style. Mm -hmm. You think of it like I, I don't think of a tweed suit cut in any other way than a British, like a classic British. But you think about British tailoring and like the, the difference to Italian tailoring and then sort of this juxtaposition with American tailoring style. Do you have a favorite that you sort of gravitate towards or, or are you more kind of Switzerland in that regard? Well, Jake Muser, I'm very lucky to, to have him build a, a bunch of suits for me and I, all my tweed suits. What we do is we build the tweed suit like an Italian would build the hopsack suit. Okay. So, you know, it, it's already such a rigid material anyway. So I don't use any canvas. We don't line it. I mean, I'll half line the pants, mm -hmm. but um, I don't line the jackets. Um, I don't put any canvas. We have always a soft shoulder. And uh, for me, that is the, the, the best of, of, of both sartorial worlds, you know. And again, you know, Jake's bringing in, you know, he's a kid that grew up, you know, a guy that grew up in the Northeast of America. Like he's bringing those American influences in the, in the tailoring notes as well. You know, like a plain front, you know, very kind of fitted tapered trouser. You know, that to me always felt very American. And uh, so I would say, like we were talking about, the melding of those three cultures, mm -hmm. yeah. tutorial cultures, for me, make the most ideal thing. That sounds so like a Switzerland position. We, well, then we'll have to rephrase. It's not a Switzerland position because he's not taking a no position. He's taking all positions. All positions. Yeah. It's, it's not neutral. It's very opinionated. But I, it, it is influenced by the things around me and that I care about. So mm -hmm. Nice. Now, do you have a favorite accessory? Something that you throw on with your jackets or like something that you just always kind of add a little you to the outfit? I mean, for me, it's always the watch. Like, okay. what does the watch say about the outfit, the day, how I feel? You know, mm -hmm. um, I don't. I don't wear a lot of accessories. I wear like a. Well, I have a wedding band, and I have a you know a Bisante leather bracelet that I always like. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but I think it's the watch that changes the most um, consistent accessory that changes. How on point do you think a man's watch game should be? You know, it's important to me and I like when it's important to other guys, but you know, it's sort of like, you know, one time somebody said to me like, well, how can I learn to dress better? And I said, well, do you care about dressing better? And they said, well, not really. And I said, well, then you don't have anything to learn. Like it's sort of like yeah. with the watches, like if you don't like them, then fine. You know, like there's no pressure, but if you do have interest in them, um, or you want to learn more about them, or you just like a specific style, then, then I think, yeah, I think find, find your A game, even if it's one watch, not 10 watches, you know? Jay's about to go to rehab for watches. No, well, actually, <laughs> Matt, that was the first conversation I had with you when I crashed your party. 
it, I was wearing a two-door big rose and uh, you actually complimented my watch. And I was with Squarcy, I was with Way, and everybody was complimenting my watch. And I, I, I sort of bought the watch before going to <laughs> because I never gave a fuck about watches. I bought the two-door big rose because the rose was logo of my company as well. It's the Yorkshire rose. Oh, right. And uh, I, then I started to get into it and then I couldn't stop. It's such an ex- yeah. bad, expensive, kind of like cocaine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of those things like you, you sort of like, oh, you start obsessing about the subtleties and the difference of them and, you know, the the characterizations yeah. of the brands. And I don't know, it's, um, I, I've been, finan- I financially have had to put the brakes on it, but if I had endless resources, I would not be stopping, you know. Is there a style icon that you most look up to? You know, I, this is going to sound like so dorky, but like, you know, my, my dad was a big style influence on, you know, how I kind of looked at my adult wardrobe growing up. And, you know, there, like I said, there was a lot of Italians in, in Mm. Binghamton and, you know, we only ever went to Italian tailors and my dad was a guy that didn't have to wear a suit every day. So when he wore a suit, it was very important to him in terms of the material and fit. And, you know, when he was, you know, off to work as a, you know, as a commercial artist. So like he was in Levi's in like Clark desert boots in a barracuda jacket with a like black mock turtleneck or like a Levi's jean jacket with like wide whale cords and like I just remember all those, like that style was important to him. And he was a guy mm-hmm. that loved cars and fine crafted things. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that shaped how, plus kind of Northeastern preppy, like that shaped my definition of like how a guy should dress mm-hmm. more than a celebrity or, you know, that was being dressed by a stylist or a wardrobe stylist for a film. Like he really became an iconic character on how I looked at, clothes and mm. how to present yourself so mm. i would say my dad was a big they played a big big role that's the first uh yeah. and that's an the first answer too. Probably, the, probably my favorite answer on that question so far. i thought you were going to say ralph lauren because you actually <laughs> met the guy many times and uh know know him personally like 50 uh, percent of our guests have said ralph lauren yeah yeah <laughs> yeah well you know ralph obviously it plays a very important role in my perspective towards men fashion men's fashion and I, I i think he's amazing but he's like he's not he's not accessible or at least he wasn't accessible he was sort of this immortal right mm. but like a tangible mortal that i admired and helped shape my style was of course my dad that's a great yeah. answer it was the best like I said, it's probably my favorite hands down so far because like i said 50 percent of our guests have said ralph loren so mm. you know for, for oh, good reason good. i'm glad but yeah, yeah I, I love that answer. You know, talking about like your, your dad and like him being your biggest influence, but how formal do you think a, a man should be on a daily basis? You know, again, I, I, I think that comes to, comes down to environment and, um, you know, what your job is and all those other details. Like, I don't know how you guys do it in Bangkok. Like my summer wardrobe is only about practicality and being comfortable and like you know um and that's why I love the northeast of America so much because I do like putting on suits and I do like wearing heavy tweeds and I do like kind of dressing and I say my fall winter wardrobe is much as much stronger game 
Mm. Um, but I, you know, I also think that we shouldn't get lazy and we shouldn't be wearing shorts and Crocs on flights. And I'm not saying you got to wear like a three piece suit, but I think there's something nice about for me being kind of styled and put together in a specific way. And then that can be as simple as like a linen shirt and white jeans and loafers or, you know, a three piece heavy, you know, flannel suit. So um, it's important to me and I surround myself with people that also find that important. So I, I, I like the, the sensitivity and the sensibility of people that feel the same way as I do. I wear shorts almost every day. <laughs> I mean, I'm wearing shorts right now. It was hot I'm yesterday. Like I'm not, right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually not wearing pants right now. <laughs> I can say the same. <laughs> that normal. smile is like with a ding. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's true. And like, and I, I grew up in Rhode Island, so uh, northeast, um, right, right there on the uh, in New England. And yeah, it's it's much easier to dress you know, formal all year because even summers are mild in Rhode Island, you know, whereas yeah, yeah. in Bangkok, winter is hotter than summer in Rhode Island. Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I sometimes get shit about um, wearing shorts in urban environments. And mm -hmm. I, I just think that's ridiculous. I think like, you know, I think last, the last event we were at last uh, June at PT, I mean, I was, it was hot as, yeah. I mean, like, mm. like, like I've never experienced in Italy. And I was in like a Drake's linen overshirt with no shirt underneath rolled up to the elbow with like some white linen shorts and loafers. And I was like, I felt as styled as, you know, anybody in a three piece linen suit, you know what I mean? Mm. And I, I just feel more comfortable that way. And I'm not going to sacrifice my comfort for some kind of presentation, but I don't think that wearing shorts is wrong under those circumstances, you know? No, I, I agree. For me, a very common outfit is, you know, shorts with suspenders. I wear suspenders with everything and then a dress shirt and a vest or a waistcoat. Great. And it's fine. fine. It's the uniform, right? Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, the, the, the style, the street style dialogue with William Brown is always a big important part of the, 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 the kind of, fashion photography and and i think what i like about that is like people like jamie people like scott people like robert spangle like i love their perspective and how they spot street style and this summer issue that'll be out in about a week um we did i think 10 pages on guys in shorts you know from silk versace drawstring shorts to military Gurkhas and you know I love how all these guys have kind of brought their signature style in um mm. with this with this varied palette of shorts and they look amazing mm. these guys look amazing and I just think you know I I want to drive that dialogue home even though mm. friends of mine like David Coggins if you're listening is very anti-shorts in the city unless you're working um I'm anti-Gurkha shorts uh, you're anti-Gurkha I actually don't own too short if it's yeah. too short, I mean, knee. You some be guys knee. do it so wrong. It's if like they do it higher than the knees and wearing an over shirt, and it's I don't like yeah, shirts. I, well, it's so it's it's funny. Like I always admire people in them. Like um like I have this picture of my friend um 
Nicola and uh, one of his clients in the streets of Naples in these, you yeah. know, they had gone to a military, there's a huge military surplus place in Naples and they had, it was so hot. Like they, and they were both wearing basically the same shorts, but they kind of looked great together. It's a one yeah. thing where I don't, it doesn't look too costumey to me, but like, I don't personally, I don't own a pair because for me, it always feels like I'm wearing a skirt, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not tall, so I don't like shorts that are so long because um, then I just feel like a little person, you know, like I'm bound for the circus. <laughs> so I, I'm tall, but I have short legs. I only have a, I'm six one with a 28 inch inseam. I have a really strange body. Okay. But my favorite <laughs> shorts are a pair of shorts I made, and they're based on a pair of Thai army shorts. And, you know, they're a oh, high cool. waist and they go just above my knee, and I just modified them with a five, bo uh, five pocket design. You know, I'm I actually this morning I have a pair of um, Italian military twill shorts nice. that have a very fine uh, upper pleat, but you know they're quite short. They're probably like seven inch inseam um, because you know the, the you know I like to show thighs, guys. Okay, I'm gonna say it right now. <laughs> like NBA in the eighties, in the seventies. Right. Oh kind my of, god! Yeah. You know, I, I still have all my old away with those yeah. very often anymore, but. You know, it's sort of like why I don't like my pants tailored too long is because it, it just feels sloppy, unfitted, and I, yeah. and I feel short, you know? Yeah. So um, that's why I like to show a little thigh. This is, this is my only rule. If, you, if you're going to rock shorts, right, don't skip leg day. Simple. Yeah, that's right. Own it. Own it. Put it on leg day. Now, I know you talked about like, you're not going to sacrifice your comfort for style. And to me, that always pulls up a balance of the tie, right? And we always have this question to tie or not to tie. Yeah. You know, where do you stand on that, that debate? I mean, I love neckties. I own piles of them. Um, I, I don't, I mean, again, like in the summer, I don't think I wear them as often as I do in the colder climates also because they kind of keep you warmer, right? Mm -hmm. when, in, when it's colder out. Um, I, I'm not, I, I, I love them. I, 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 I always try to wear them with jackets, but again, you know, I lived in a seersucker suit last summer and I probably wore a tie with it twice, you know, because it was just hot as balls. I, mm. I you know, about it, but I do I, like them. Okay. Yeah I, mean, yeah, I think it's, it's up in the air for everyone. You know, and the last question on our, our 10 questions that we, we inject in the middle of the uh, interview is, is there a movie character who you just think their style is on lock? You know, I, I'm a huge fan of kind of 70s cinema. So that means like all the president's men, um, even like Annie Hall to The Godfather. And I would think like, and I just recently watched The Sting. And um, I think Michael Corleone in the original Godfather, his suiting and style was like unbelievable. I think Robert Redford in All the President's Men, 70s corduroy on corduroy, I think was like the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, heavy broad striped Oxfords with a khaki corduroy jacket with brown corduroy pants, like, Come on, like that was fucking incredible. And then, uh, you know, recently I watched The Sting that was um, styled by a very famous Hollywood stylist called Edith Head. And, you know, she basically 
what this was supposed to be 1930s America, but it was filmed in the mid 1970s. So he, she's dressing those guys like 70s guys for the 1930s. So big, double-breasted, wide pinstripe suits and you know uh straight flared legs and i mean these they just and again you're, you're talking about redford and newman you can't go wrong right mm -hmm. their tuxedos have these massive cummerbunds with starch turned up collared um like wing collared shirts and in deep shawls i was like obsessed like my 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 wife and daughter were like will you please shut the hell up like you know? and, and is I, it shut I, the fuck up or hell up please you can't you gotta choose one shut the fuck up. <laughs> um and I, you know so I, I i think that that period of cinema was um i think very cool it probably stopped for me around you know like American Gigolo, you know, uh, when Armani did those kind of all that loose kind of drapey clothing on Richard yeah. Gere looked, looked so amazing. I don't think I can get away with it, but like, I definitely, I feel probably I'm more Woody Allen in Annie Hall than uh, Richard Gere in uh, American Gigolo. Would you, <laughs> you wear the Annie coat? Hall would you wear the American Gigolo coat? I, I would wear the coat. I, I think it's like, it just looks like an elegant cashmere robe, you know? I, yeah. I I don't like with when it comes to overcoats and trenches. I like it when they're less constructed anyway, um, mm. because you're wearing it over something. You sort of want it to feel like a big cardigan in a way. It was um, such an interesting garment. It's like it's got hidden buttons and and looks very comfortable to wear too. Yeah, and looks great on Richard Gere for sure. Kind of hard not to though, right? I mean, Richard's gears. Yeah, and I think you could you could probably slap you know put him in a Canadian tuxedo and he'll look great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I, you right. talk about the cummerbund. I, I love a cummerbund. You know, you don't see them too much anymore. Yeah, I, I love them. I have one. Um, you know, they they hide a plethora of physical faults when yes. worn correctly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they've gone out of fashion. But I, 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 you know, my buddy Angel wears one with tuxedo. I, I wear them on occasion. My buddy Fred wears them on occasion, and I think they're they're great. And uh, I'm I'm gonna vow to wear them more often. Even tuxedos, you don't see them so often anymore. No. Are you kidding me, dude? Like I pack a tuxedo everywhere I go. I I love any <laughs> where any do you opportunity. Go? Where, what, what group do listen, you have to be in to wear tuxedos? Listen, Jay, you don't, like, when we all went to Scotland, like, we were staying at this kind of country estate. There was no dress code for dinner at all. But, of yeah. course, like, every guy that I was with had a tuxedo with him. And we were, like, black tie tonight. And everyone was like, yeah, sure. Like, it was nothing. Like, <laughs> you know, you know, or if I'm, like, traveling and I throw a tuxedo in, like, you know, inevitably, uh, like, somebody says, like, Hey, I don't know if you have a tuxedo on you, but there's a black tie thing tonight. And I'm like, of course I have a tuxedo on me. <laughs> Always be prepared. Hey, when you come to Bangkok, we're going to check your luggage and do a, Let's do a tuxedo uh, like client <laughs> check on that. Yeah. And have like noodles in the street and like. In a toxic. Black well, I'm going to tell you something. I'll, I'll tell you something incredible. Speaking of that, I was in Shanghai for the first mm -hmm. time. And there was this big watch event for Omega. And it was a black tie event. It was like insane. It would look like a James Bond set. Like you walked over a lit bridge into a red room. It was insane. The food mm. was horrible. Okay. Horrible. Shanghai food is terrible. Because it was like, but they were trying to do Western food mm. at this event. 
So I was with some Australian journalists. We were in tuxedos and I was like, dude, are you hungry? He goes, he was like, I am so hungry. We got to like, I know this great place to get street food behind the hotel off the Bund. And I was like, great. And I said, well, why don't we go change? He's like, no way, mate. We're going to stay in our tuxedos. And I was like, fuck yeah, we're going to stay in our tuxedos. So we pulled up some guy making stir fry, pulled out a table. We bought beers at the um, 7-Eleven. That's so dope. That on the street in tuxedos, eating stir fried noodles, drinking beers. I was like, dude, this is the chicest thing ever. And, it, oh, you know, man. people people were walking by going like, who the hell are these characters? <laughs> and I do think he was right to do that. And the contrast was so much fun. That story just made me miss traveling so much. I why like, It's just made me miss traveling. Like when you said you know, pull out the chairs and sound like, I was thinking about masks. Like, do you have to wear masks? Like, I mean, the world has changed so much. I don't know when we're going to get to travel again uh, and, and you know, live a normal life where you can just go anywhere in the world. I know. I think we're trying to get to Europe and it looks like it could be the first or mid-July for us. Mm. So we'll see. We'll see. You think hey, you can you still I... go mid-July? I think Italy and France is going to allow non-EU uh, access in like the first week in July. Uh, certainly Greece is, and we've had plans to go to Greece this year. So we'll see. It's been very vague in terms of um, getting information. But Ever been to Cyprus? Uh, I've never been to Cyprus. I'd love to go to Cyprus. The guy who's editing this video later, he's from Cyprus, and uh It'll be good for him to hear a shout out because we have so many uh, lags on this episode. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. No, I, have, I, say, I sent shit tons of cloth today to Cyprus and I was like, oh, I really want to go there. Normally I want to travel before my cloth travels and see the people face to face, not Zoom calls yeah. and, you know, like uh, hang yeah. out with their family. Exactly. But thank you exactly. for that story. Thank you for that story. Yeah, that gave me course. a little escape for a while. So um, are we pretty much wrapped now, guys? Or is there anything yeah, else? Yeah. To... yeah, absolutely. So where can okay, people great. find out more about, you know, William Brown, the magazine, WM Project? You know, where can they follow you on social? So just so they know. Okay. So on Instagram, it's at WM Brown Project and at WM Brown Magazine. Um, both of those accounts, you can get uh, up-to-date uh, profiles on my daily drinking and eating, at least. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know, communicate. Tell me what you want to see and and how we can make the magazine better. I'm I'm interested in all that yeah. dialogue. And so send send Matt a DM. He's a very friendly person. I really recommend it. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Don't ask for the top, your top 20, my top 20 favorite places at, or restaurants anywhere. Like, okay. Like don't ask. <laughs> Do you get a lot of that? Do you get a lot of that? Oh yeah. 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 It's like, can I get your top 50 bars in Europe? And it's like, <laughs> no, no. I'm like my mom doesn't even get that. No. <laughs> I'll tell you one. <laughs> Matt. Thank you so much, man. All the links to everything you do will be in the show notes. So guys, if you want to check that out, which I highly recommend you do, check the show notes, links there. Matt, thank you again, man. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed talking with you. Same. See you, See you in Bangkok. Until next time, everyone. 
Stay dapper. Stay dapper. Stay, Stay villainous. villainous. Oh, fuck, we got it. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.